I've treated hundreds of patients and trained thousands of healthcare professionals over my 15-year career. And one thing I've learned through that experience is that most people are really confused about supplements, or they lack a clear strategy or plan for how to use supplements to improve their health. That's why I created Adapt Naturals. It's a supplement line designed to add back in what the modern world has squeezed out and help you feel and perform your best. Our ancestors' diets were rich in the essential vitamins and minerals and phytonutrients we need for optimal function. But today, thanks to declining soil quality, a growing toxic burden, and other challenges in the modern world, most of us are not getting enough of these critical nutrients. I formulated Adapt Naturals using the principles of evolutionary biology and modern research to fill the nutrient gaps that we face today and replicate the nutrient intakes found in an optimal ancestral diet. Our flagship offering is called the Core Plus Bundle, a daily stack of five products that gives you everything you need each day, from essential vitamins and minerals like B12, folate, magnesium, and vitamin D, to phytonutrients like bioflavonoids, carotenoids, and beta-glucans. You can also order the products in the bundle separately if that works better for your needs. The Adapt Naturals products are made from the highest quality, food-based, or bioidentical ingredients. From cellular and immune health, to brain and nervous system support, to blood sugar and heart health, we've got you covered. Your supplement cupboard is about to get a lot smaller. We also created an app called Core Reset to help you get your nutrition, sleep, movement, and stress management dialed in. Because no matter how good our supplements are, and they are really good, you can't supplement yourself out of a bad diet and lifestyle. The best part is that you get this app at no additional cost when you order the Core Plus bundle. Head over to adaptnaturals.com, that's A-D-A-P-T naturals.com, to learn more and start feeling and performing your best. I'll admit that I'm a little jaded when it comes to holidays and gifts. I've always viewed the holidays as primarily a time to connect and spend time with loved ones and reflect on everything I'm grateful for and appreciative of. But it seems to me that, at least in rich industrialized countries like the U.S., the holiday season has transformed into an orgy of consumerism, and this can make it difficult to stay connected to the true spirit of the holidays. One way I've addressed this in my life is to focus on giving gifts that I feel will truly make a difference in the recipient's life. I try to choose gifts that uplift, inspire, empower, educate, and generally help people to feel and perform their best. With that in mind, I'm excited to share our first annual holiday gift guide. I've curated a selection of my favorite products from trusted partners. These are the products and services that have made a big impact on my own life and my patients' lives. I can recommend them with confidence because I've experienced their benefits firsthand. I've personally approved every gift in the guide. They've made it through my rigorous selection criteria, which include quality, efficacy, purity, brand values, and supporting research. These are the gifts that keep giving over and over. I hope you enjoy giving them as much as I've enjoyed sharing them with you in the guide. Just go to cresser.co slash gift to check it out. That's cresser.co slash G-I-F-T. Hey everybody, Chris Cresser here. Welcome to another episode of Revolution Health Radio. In this show, we're going to talk all about non-celiac gluten sensitivity and discuss whether it's a real condition or it just exists in the minds of people who claim to be gluten intolerant. And that's indeed the impression that you get if you follow the mainstream media on this topic or even talk to your primary care doctor about it. There's still a common impression 
that I've found from talking to patients that come see me in the clinic that gluten intolerance is imaginary and the only condition that really does exist when it comes to gluten is celiac disease. If you are one of these people that suffers from gluten intolerance and you don't have celiac disease, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You may have been ridiculed or criticized by people uh, in your family or your friends or just on social media. And uh, as I think you'll come to understand uh, by the end of this show, that's not only unfair, it's completely out of alignment with the current scientific evidence base. We're going to review uh, some of the studies that support non-celiac wheat sensitivity, which I'll refer to it as in this show, because it turns out that people can be sensitive to multiple different proteins within wheat, not just gluten, which is only one of those proteins. And the recent statistics that we have now suggest that this condition affects up to 18 million Americans or about 5% of the population. So we're not talking about something that affects just a small handful of people. This is something that affects a large number of people and the impacts can be significant, uh, equaling or in some cases even surpassing the impact that celiac disease can have. So in this podcast, I'm going to share research on non-celiac wheat sensitivity, and I hope show you convincingly that it most definitely does exist, and it contributes to a shockingly diverse range of conditions from depression to schizophrenia, epilepsy, type 1 diabetes, osteoporosis, dermatitis and psoriasis, to Hashimoto's hypothyroidism, to peripheral neuropathy. Ready? Let's dive in. Celiac disease and non-celiac wheat sensitivity are two distinct conditions with a few major differences. So celiac is an autoimmune disease characterized by an inflammatory immune response to wheat, rye, barley, and other uh, gluten-containing proteins. And it results in a significant disruption of the normal structure of the tissue in the gut, including atrophy of epithelial cell projections called villi, and an enlargement of intestinal crypts where new epithelial cells form from stem cells. Celiac disease is strongly associated with uh, the genetic halotypes DQ2 and DQ8 of the HLA gene. So there is a very strong genetic predisposition and, and heritable quality of celiac disease. In terms of blood biomarkers, the transglutaminase 2 or TTG2 autoantibody is considered the most sensitive marker for celiac disease, but um, that testing is, is not perfect and can be problematic, as we'll discuss later on. Non-celiac wheat sensitivity, on the other hand, is a term that's applied to people who experience symptoms in response to eating wheat or gluten, but who lack the characteristic markers of celiac disease. And the list of, of signs and symptoms here can be incredibly broad, ranging from uh, GI discomfort to fatigue to neurological issues uh, to skin rashes to even paralysis in some cases, al although temporary. And these people do tend to improve on a gluten-free diet, but as I said in the introduction, they're often mocked or ridiculed for avoiding wheat and gluten and told that their sensitivity is all in their head. So in response to these claims that have been made over the last few years, I've written several articles on non-celiac wheat sensitivity on my blog, and I will link to those in the show notes for this episode. So if you want to check them out, you can head over to my website. But the gist is that 
uh, non-celiac wheat sensitivity is indeed a real condition. It's supported by numerous studies in the scientific literature, and uh, it, it can, like I said just now, be as serious or even more serious than celiac disease in some cases. You'll find that those who claim that gluten sensitivity isn't real often cite a study that attributed any negative reactions that people experience to gluten to FODMAPs. This is a class of compounds, most of them are complex uh, long-chain carbohydrates that people with digestive issues have trouble breaking down, and the low FODMAP diet is often used in that context for people with IBS or other GI problems to help reduce the symptoms. So there have been a couple studies that have shown that for some people who thought they were gluten intolerant, they actually had FODMAP intolerance. And they were when they were given you know purified gluten in a capsule outside of the typical foods that gluten is in that are also high FODMAP, they didn't have any reaction. Whereas when they eat you know these high FODMAP foods, they did have a reaction. And I don't doubt that um, that's true for some people. I see FODMAP intolerance a lot in my practice. A lot of people with digestive issues can't tolerate FODMAPs and Again, I think it's at least you know plausible that some people who believe they were gluten intolerant are actually FODMAP intolerant. However, there have been a few different studies done since then, um, which I think are a better way of getting at the question of non-celiac wheat sensitivity. And even with that one particular study, the researchers chose whey protein for people in the control group, which is a terrible choice. <laughs> considering that many of their subjects likely had inflamed guts and multiple food sensitivities, including dairy products. So uh, I don't think that was a well-designed study, and I definitely don't think it answered the question definitively. A much better study was published a few years ago in BMJ Gut. Researchers at Columbia University Medical Center enrolled 80 people with self-reported gluten intolerance, 40 people with celiac disease and then 40 healthy controls who didn't have any known uh, response to gluten. And then the, the patients with gluten intolerance were excluded if they showed any of the characteristic diagnostic markers of celiac disease like uh, alpha-gliadin antibodies or TTG2, transglutaminase 2 antibodies, or any history of celiac-like structural changes in the gut. So they wanted to have a clean sample of people who just claimed to be gluten intolerant but had no evidence or history of celiac disease. So then they took blood samples and intestinal biopsies from all of the people in the study. And the blood samples were used to look for particular signaling molecules and proteins in the blood, while the biopsies were used for tissue analysis in the gut. In addition to comparing those measures uh, between the different groups, they also took a subset of 20 patients with gluten intolerance who had adhered to a strict gluten-free diet for six months and compared their blood and tissue samples before and after gluten avoidance. So what did they find? Well, non-celiac wheat-sensitive individuals had leaky gut. Big surprise. They showed increased intestinal permeability when compared to healthy subjects. And that really shouldn't be a surprise because we know that gliadin, which is a component of gluten, can affect tight junction proteins that help regulate intestinal permeability. In addition, subjects in the non-celiac wheat sensitivity group had 
evidence of systemic immune activation. So their blood levels of lipopolysaccharide binding protein and SCD14 were significantly elevated in comparison with people who had celiac disease and healthy controls. Those are sensitive markers of what we call microbial translocation, which means bacteria that should stay in the gut was leaking into the bloodstream and inducing a low-grade chronic inflammatory response. And then analysis of the tissue biopsies showed that the non-celiac wheat sensitivity group also had epithelial cell damage similar to the celiac disease group, which was supported by elevated levels of a marker called FABP2. And in the subset of non-celiac wheat-sensitive individuals that were analyzed before they started their gluten-free diet, they found that inflammation and cell damage markers improved significantly after six months of gluten avoidance. So this was a much more carefully designed study, as you can see, and I think it pretty conclusively proves the existence of non-celiac wheat sensitivity as a condition. Vitamin C is a critical nutrient for immune function and antioxidant protection. Yet most people don't get enough in their diet, and most vitamin C supplements contain synthetic forms, GMO, sugar, or allergens like soy or corn. This is why I recommend whole food forms of vitamin C, which contain the full spectrum of vitamin C activity without GMOs or other junk. And my favorite whole food vitamin C product is Essential C from Paleo Valley. It's made with three of the most potent vitamin C-rich superfoods on the planet, one of which is 120 times more potent than an orange. Nothing synthetic, no weird questionable ingredients, just food. Right now, they're offering my community an exclusive 15% off discount. Just go to paleovalley.com chris and use the code CRESSER15 to get 15% off. If you've listened to this show for a while, you know that I'm a super active guy. Depending on the time of year, I'm either skiing, mountain biking, hiking, backpacking, surfing, or lifting weights on most days of the week. I also live in a really dry climate at high elevation. For these reasons, I pay a lot of attention to hydration. I've learned the hard way what happens when I get dehydrated, and I know how important hydration is to overall health. But hydration isn't just about drinking water. It's about water plus electrolytes. This is where Element comes in. It's a combination of electrolytes like sodium, potassium, and magnesium in easy-to-use individual packets that you just add right to your water bottle. And unlike most electrolyte products on the market, Element is free of sugar and artificial junk. I drink Element every day, and it's made a huge difference in how I feel. Even with my training and profession, I don't think I realized how often I was dehydrated before I made Element part of my daily routine. If you'd like to try it, the folks at Element have an exclusive offer for my podcast listeners. You can get a free sample pack with one of each of the eight flavors Element sells when you purchase any Element product. This is perfect for anyone who wants to try all of the flavors or who wants to introduce a friend to Element. Just go to cresser.co slash element, that's L-M-N-T, to place an order and take advantage of this offer. So as the research has progressed over the past few years, there have been some diagnostic criteria established for non-CDAC wheat sensitivity, and they include uh, eating gluten provokes a, a rapid occurrence of intestinal and extra-intestinal symptoms. Extra-intestinal means outside of the gut, so some of the things we talked about before, 
you know, could be brain related issues, anxiety, depression, cognitive dysfunction, could be skin issue like eczema or psoriasis, could be, you know, hormone imbalance, could be changes in blood sugar, uh, could be anemia. We'll talk a little bit more about some of the other conditions that gluten intolerance can provoke uh, in a little bit. But one thing I would add to this is that the the reaction is not always rapid in my experience. Um, it often is, but it can be delayed by a few hours or even a day in some people. And that can make it more difficult to really identify this problem because someone eats gluten, let's say for lunch one day, and then they don't notice a significant response right after or even that evening, but the next day they feel terrible and they might not trace it back to uh, the gluten they ate at lunchtime the day before. The next criteria is that symptoms disappear or greatly relieved when gluten is removed from the diet and recur if gluten is reintroduced. Uh, wheat allergy has been ruled out. That's an allergy is different than an intolerance that's mediated by a different part of the immune system. Uh, and that can be fairly easily tested for from any uh, immunologist or clinician that focuses on food allergies. So it's good to rule out any, uh, an IgE-mediated wheat allergy. Uh, and then also good to get the basic celiac disease testing, even though it's not perfect, to rule out celiac disease. Um, intestinal mucosa is normal, so no atrophy or blunting of the intestinal villi, and that's part of the standard workup for celiac disease. And then with non-celiac wheat sensitivities, sometimes you'll about 50% of the time you'll see antibodies to gliadin, but 50% of the time you won't. So it's really just a coin flip and a negative result. This is really important to understand with this conventional test does not mean that you don't have the condition. Likewise, with the genetic markers HLA-DQ2 or HLA-DQ8, um, only about 40% of the time those are positive. So the majority of the time they're negative. So those are not very useful diagnostic markers either. But really one of the biggest issues here, as I've alluded to, is that the conventional testing is really poor. In order to explain why, I have to give you a quick lesson in biochemistry of wheat and wheat digestion. I'll try to make it as, as brief as possible. So wheat contains several different classes of protein. You hear a lot about gluten, but wheat is a complex plant and it has many different proteins in it. Gliadins, which is the scientific name for gluten, and then glutenin, that's very confusing, but that's spelled G-L-U-T-E-N-I-N. -N. It's not gluten, it's a different protein called glutenin. Those are the two main components of the gluten fraction of the wheat seed. So you have gliadin and glutenins. Incidentally, these are essential for giving bread the ability to rise properly during baking, and it explains why you've probably never had a good gluten-free croissant. <laughs> it's just, you know, gluten is pretty amazing in that regard. Um, and the components of, of gluten that are responsible for this are the gliadins and the glutenins. But then within the gliadin class, there are actually four different epitopes or types of gliadin. There's alpha gliadin, beta gliadin, gamma, and omega gliadin. And then wheat contains proteins called agglutinins that bind to sugar and prodynorphins, which are proteins involved with cellular communication. And once wheat is consumed, enzymes in the digestive tract 
called transglutaminases help to break down that wheat compound. And in that process, additional proteins are formed, including deamidated gliadin and gliadorphins, which are sometimes called gluteomorphins. So here's the crucial thing to understand. Celiac disease is characterized by an immune response to one specific epitope of gliadin, alpha-gliadin. Remember, there are three more. And one specific type of transglutaminase enzyme, which is TGG2. But we now know that people can and do react to all of the other components of wheat and gluten, including the other three epitopes of gliadin, beta, gamma, and omega, the glutenin part of the wheat protein, wheat germagglutinin, deamidated gliadin, as well as the other types of transglutaminase enzymes, including type 3, which is primarily found in the skin, and type 6, which is primarily found in the brain. So an example of how this might play out is that in the more comprehensive testing that I do with patients, I might screen somebody for uh, wheat and gluten intolerance, and they might test positive for beta and gamma gliadin antibodies, and then maybe wheat germagglutinin, and maybe transglutaminase 3. I could predict, based on um, the particular enzyme they're reacting to, transglutaminase 3 in this case, that their response to gluten is going to manifest primarily in the skin because that's where that enzyme is found. But this person, if they were to go get a conventional test for gluten intolerance, would be completely missed and would be misdiagnosed as, as having no response because that conventional test only looks at antibodies to alpha-gliadin and transglutaminase 2. So if you're reacting to any of the other fractions of the wheat protein or any other type of transglutaminase, you're going to test negative and you'll be told that you don't have an issue with gluten. I can't tell you how many times I've seen that in my practice over almost 15 years, probably over 100 times because I test almost all patients for non-celiac wheat sensitivity. And many of them had already had previous tests that were mislabeled as being normal. Another reason non-celiac wheat sensitivity continues to be underdiagnosed is because of the shockingly diverse range of problems it can cause. Gluten intolerance can affect nearly every tissue in the body, including the brain, skin, endocrine system, stomach, liver, blood vessels, smooth muscles, and even the nucleus of cells. As I said earlier, it's associated with an astonishing variety of diseases from schizophrenia to epilepsy to type 1 diabetes to osteoporosis to skin conditions to Hashimoto's hypothyroidism to peripheral neuropathy. Because the range of symptoms associated with gluten intolerance is so broad and nonspecific, which means it could potentially be attributed to any number of conditions, Many patients and doctors don't even suspect that gluten may be the cause of a particular problem, especially if the patient doesn't present with the classic GI symptoms that many people assume must be present if someone has uh, gluten intolerance. Let me give you a few specific examples. So you get an annual physical from your doctor and she discovers you have anemia. She'll likely prescribe an iron supplement or if you're female, ask you questions about your menstrual cycle. However, iron deficiency anemia is well documented as a symptom of gluten intolerance in scientific studies. In fact, research suggests that it may often be the first noticeable symptom of celiac disease and that up to 75% of those with an anemia diagnosis may be gluten intolerant. Gluten intolerance can interfere with the uptake of iron from food 
which causes malabsorption of iron and can lead to anemia. Or let's say you visit your doctor complaining of a headache. It's highly unlikely he'll test you for gluten intolerance, which is unfortunate because headache is a frequent finding in non-celiac wheat-sensitive patients, with one study reporting that symptom in more than half of the participants. And that was especially true for people with migraines. Or maybe you visit your dermatologist complaining of eczema or psoriasis or another skin condition. There's virtually no chance you'll be tested for gluten intolerance. But again, this is a mistake because people with non-celiac wheat sensitivity notice a worsening of skin symptoms like eczema, rash, and dermatitis after consuming gluten. The most commonly reported skin lesions include those similar to subacute eczema, as well as the bumps and blisters indicative of, of dermatitis herpetiformis, or Durings disease, which celiac disease is closely linked to. Those who are gluten intolerant may also experience scaly patches resembling psoriasis, and the lesions are typically found on the muscles of the upper limbs, although not always. Finally, brain-related issues like depression, anxiety, dementia, Alzheimer's, and Parkinson's are frequently associated with gluten intolerance. Recent statistics suggest that up to 22% of patients with celiac disease develop such dysfunctions with anxiety and depression occurring the most commonly. One study found that celiac disease patients were more likely than others to feel anxious in the face of threatening situations, while additional research has linked conditions like panic disorder and social phobia to gluten response. Depression and other related mood disorders also appear to occur with both non-celiac wheat sensitivity and celiac disease. And studies now suggest that gut dysfunction, which can be driven by undiagnosed gluten intolerance, leads to inflammation in the brain and the hallmark signs and symptoms of cognitive and neurodegenerative conditions. I cover this in more detail in a recent Tuesday tip video on my YouTube channel called Is Gluten Harming Your Brain? I'll put a link to this in the show notes, or you can visit youtube.com slash to find it. Okay, so with all of this in mind, how do you know if you or your children may be affected by non-celiac wheat sensitivity. Unfortunately, you can't rely on the conventional testing that your primary care physician or GI doc might offer for the reasons we've just discussed. I can't tell you how many times patients have come to me and said their doctor tested them for celiac or non-celiac wheat sensitivity and they were negative, only to find out that they were hugely positive when we used more accurate testing. The two tests I've used in the clinic with patients are Array3x from Cyrex Labs, C-Y-R-E-X, and the Wheat Zoomer panel from Vibrant Wellness. That's Z-O-O-M-E-R, Wheat Zoomer. Now these tests aren't perfect and they do require some expertise to interpret, but they are far more comprehensive than conventional tests because they look at all of the other components of the wheat protein rather than just looking at alpha-gliadin and transglutaminase 2 like the conventional tests do. You do need a doctor to order these tests and in my experience most conventional primary care or GI docs are not familiar with them and generally won't order them. Um, your mileage may vary. I've, I have heard of, in some cases of patients being able to convince their doctors to order those tests so it's, it's certainly worth a try. Um, but you're more likely to find success with an integrative or functional medicine doctor or clinician or a nutritionist who has this kind of training. They're more likely to work with these labs and be able to interpret them properly. If you don't have access to a practitioner who uses these labs, 
you can still do an, a gluten elimination provocation challenge. And the reality is this is still a gold standard when it comes to identifying gluten intolerance. And I will often ask patients to do it even if they've tested positive with the Cyrex Ray 3 or Vibrant Wheat Zoomer in order to confirm the diagnosis. So here's how you do it. You remove all gluten-containing foods and products from your diet for 60 days. Uh, there's a lot of information online available about how to do this, and the good news is that it's so much easier to do it now than it was when I first started practicing 15 years ago in virtually all places in the world. Well, I won't say all places in the world, but many places in the world, it's quite easy to avoid gluten if you're diligent, um, and there are lots of gluten-free alternatives at this point. But it's really important to be strict during that 60 days because you're trying to get your body to a baseline reset without any gluten at all. And cheating during this time can really be counterproductive because you'll never get to that baseline. So during this elimination provocation challenge, it's vital to be strict for that first 60-day period. Then at the end of the 60-day period, cook up a bowl of barley and eat it and see what happens. So you can get barley at, at a lot of health food stores. You, you know, you can buy it generally in the bag where, you know, uh, other grains are sold. And you don't need to get fancy here. This is really just part of a test. And I'm sure many people have not ever eaten barley just as a whole grain. But, you know, you just boil it, cook it like you do rice. The instructions will be on the bag and just eat a bowl and see what happens. And the reason for doing this is that barley is a gluten-containing grain that is low in FODMAPs. So remember we talked about the studies that showed that some people who thought they were gluten intolerant were actually FODMAP intolerant. If you eat the barley and react to it, that suggests you're intolerant of gluten or other gluten-like compounds because there are very few FODMAPs in barley. And if, you know, if, if it was FODMAP intolerance, that was a problem for you, then consuming barley would not uh, provoke a response because there aren't really many FODMAPs in barley. Then a few days later, eat a piece of wheat bread. And the wheat bread has both gluten and FODMAPs. Uh, so if you didn't react to the barley, but then you do react to the wheat bread, it suggests that you may be FODMAP intolerant rather than gluten intolerant. If you react to both the barley and the wheat, then that suggests that you are gluten or wheat intolerant. Now, some patients have asked me, you know, about this test over the years. They say, if I do that, I'm going to be in pain for a week afterwards. You know, if I eat a piece of wheat bread, it's, it's going to be ugly. My response to that is then you are almost certainly gluten or wheat intolerant. And that's the end of the, I mean, that's really the end of the story. Like you don't need to go further than that. If you notice a violent reaction, anytime you eat anything with gluten or wheat in it, and you don't have access to the testing to confirm, that should be enough. You don't really need your doctor or friends or family to buy into your diagnosis, although I know how frustrating it can be when they don't, and it's irritating when that happens, but at the end of the day, it's your body, and you are um, gonna be the one that suffers if you 
continue eating gluten and wheat when you're reactive to it. And if the people in your life are not supportive of that, then that's on them, not you. I personally don't feel like it's worth it to put yourself through a week or more of intense pain and diarrhea, gas, bloating, pain, you know, whatever other symptoms that you experience just to prove a point. If you already know that you're that sensitive, then I wouldn't recommend doing this. This is really more for people who are not sure and they don't have access to the testing that I just talked about and they want to get more clarity about whether they're reacting. They also want to get clarity about whether they might be responding to FODMAPs or to wheat and gluten specifically. So if you, you know, going back to this test, if you react to wheat, the wheat bread, that tells you that you are sensitive to wheat. And as I mentioned, there are many compounds in wheat, only some of which are gluten. So it is possible that if you react to wheat bread, that you may be able to safely consume gluten-containing products other than wheat, like, for example, you know, I have patients who are able to consume small amounts of soy sauce if they go out for sushi or Japanese food. But if they have a piece of bread, that's problematic. That's not uncommon, and it's better for us to think about wheat and gluten sensitivity as a, on a spectrum instead of just a binary black or white condition, which is kind of what it's been looked at historically. So you may be someone who can have, you know, maybe a small amount of gluten in a packaged food, or you could have uh, soy sauce, like I said, but you just can't have any flour. That's That's a fairly common scenario that I see in my patients. I would argue even then that you, you know, because there's some already demonstrated sensitivity to wheat or gluten, that you should probably take it easy even on the soy sauce or other gluten containing foods. But, you know, eating them occasionally, if you go out to dinner or something like that, and you don't have a noticeable reaction could be fine. So after you've done that three-step test of removing gluten for 60 days, cooking barley and eating it, seeing what happens, and then eating wheat bread, the next steps beyond that, if you, if you want, would be to try things like soy sauce or other compound or other foods that have gluten that aren't wheat and see how you do with those. And then from there, you should have a pretty good idea of where you fall on that spectrum. Okay. That's it for now. I hope this podcast has been helpful. There's still so many misconceptions about gluten intolerance and wheat sensitivity, and I've tried to cover the highlights in this episode. But if you want to do a deeper dive, check out my free ebook called Should You Go Gluten-Free? It goes into everything I've covered in this podcast in more detail and contains all of the scientific references, studies, links, and other useful resources. You can find that at chriscresser.com slash gluten dash free. That's chriscresser.com slash gluten dash free. Thanks for listening, everybody. Keep sending your questions to chriscresser.com slash podcast question. Even though I'm not doing Q&A episodes at this point, I still source topics from that list of questions. And in fact, that's where this topic came from. So please do keep sending your questions in. I love hearing from you and I will see you next time. That's the end of this episode of Revolution Health Radio. If you appreciate the show and want to help me create a healthier and happier world, 
please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. They really do make a difference. If you'd like to ask a question for me to answer on a future episode, you can do that at chriscresser.com slash podcast question. You can also leave a suggestion for someone you'd like me to interview there. If you're on social media, you can follow me at twitter.com slash chriscresser or facebook.com slash chriscresserlac. I post a lot of articles and research that I do throughout the week there that never makes it to the blog or podcast, so it's a great way to stay abreast of the latest developments. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.